Good morning. My name is Jen Peterson, and our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, this morning I'm going to talk about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but especially 2nd John. As you know, we've been galloping through the New Testament and uh, introducing you to the big ideas of the New Testament. But I want to begin with a statement that, um, well, I don't guess it's controversial, but maybe it's a little bit, uh, maybe catch off guard. I don't know. Um, Here's a statement. There is an apparent contradiction that is pretty popular that really causes a lot of problems. And I would uh, describe the apparent contradiction that causes problems something like this. Love and truth are not compatible with one another. Okay? Bold statement, but here's what I mean. I think you've experienced it. Some people say, look, truth is hard, sometimes harsh, and um, it should be avoided as much as possible so that you can exercise love. The other perspective... uh, is this, love is kind and it's superior to truth, so it should be our guide. Uh, Truth should take a back seat to love in terms of importance, right? You've probably heard that sentiment or maybe you've even felt it yourself, right? When someone was harsh with what they believed to be the truth, you wanted to say, is there any love in there? So you probably experienced it. But the concept that somehow truth and love are opposites or in some measure contradict one another, it's not a biblical concept. It's certainly not a concept that would be embraced by the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Why? Because he spends a huge amount of time talking about the importance of truth and he talks about love. So let me break it down this way. It could be broken down a lot of ways. If you're talking about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you, you hear the author communicating some essential truths concerning the faith. These things are true, he says. I'll name just four of them. 
One, he says, this is true. Jesus is the word of life. And we saw the word of life in real history, real time. In other words, at the very beginning, he describes himself as the disciples, as witnesses to the truth, which is Jesus. It was not a mythology. It was not just some sort of experience that was spiritual. It was real. He actually walked with us, in other words. He was present in the flesh. Second essential truth that he communicates is this. Some claim that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that God was not incarnate in the flesh. And he says, that's not true. What is true is that God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. That, he says, is what I want to communicate to you. Apparently, there were, in the first century, already, plenty of theories concerning Jesus, right? And they were being spread by teachers, and uh, mostly traveling teachers, who thought they had insight into this thing uh, called faith in Jesus Christ. Some of them proposed theories about Jesus Christ that said he was just kind of a phantom, not really human. And what you actually had was a person who was sort of spirit but not body. You had a person that didn't really die physically on the cross, but somehow in a spiritual sense passed away. But he was spirit anyway. John is speaking against that. He's saying that's not true. What is true is that Jesus came in the flesh. But he gets a little bit more straightforward about it. And he says, those who are teaching the opposite of what I'm saying, they're deceivers, they're imposters, and they're turning you away from the truth. Don't be turned away from the truth by these false teachers. Truth number three. John says, I don't know if this is a newsflash, those aren't his words, but you are not sinless. You're sinners. He puts it in these words. He says, if, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. And we are lying. But if we say we have sin, then the remedy for sin is Jesus Christ, the righteous one who forgives sins, the people who confess their sins. So it's essential, says John, that you recognize who you are. That is a sinner in need of grace. Don't believe that you're good and getting better. Don't believe that there's some way that you can attain a level of perfection. Don't believe any of that. Believe this. You needed Jesus because you're a sinner and you need to be rescued. And once you believe that, you believe the truth. If you don't believe that, you're not believing the truth. We confess this and we claim Christ as our salvation. The cleansing for sin comes through the Son of God. Essential truth number four. Those who love God actually follow God. How about that? Those who mouth words about God, 
and don't live in love, they're not of God. Doesn't matter how good their doctrine is. Doesn't matter how smart they are. If they do not love, they're not of God. They're actually imposters, false teachers. And there were a lot of them. Said the right thing, taught the good things. But they didn't follow God. And he says, those who actually love God, follow him. Now the next section is chapter 4, which is the portion that we read this morning. And uh, some biblical scholars describe this section uh, in the epistle as being a digression. Right? He's been talking about truth. He's been arguing against false teachers. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he starts talking about love. With all due respect, I disagree with those teachers who suggest that that's a good interpretation. I don't think it is a digression at all. I think it's an extension of an argument that truth and love are inseparable from one another. So how does that happen? He finishes up by saying, here are some essential truth, and then he transitions with the words that you heard. And he says in verses 7 and beyond, this is love, he says. It comes from God. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Put it another way. We don't get to define love. We don't have the capability of defining love. All we can do is act upon the love that has been given. All we can do is reflect the God who is love. We can have wrongly directed loves. That's not true love. To love God is to follow God. The definition of love is grounded in the truth about God. And what is the truth about God? Among other things, the truth about God is all love is from God because God is the source of love. It, it, it comes from nowhere else. It doesn't come from nature. It doesn't come from science. It doesn't come from history. It comes from God. From God, God's self. There's something else to be said about this. That is true, according to John, whether you recognize it or not. Or put another way, the implication is that those who live in love, even if they deny God, are reflecting the love of God because that's the source of love. It's the nature of grace that we have been made in the image of God. And when we reflect love in our lives, it's like the sun being reflected through us. The source is God. I, I love St. Augustine as a theologian. And uh, one of the things he said I want to make an application to on this point. 
He said, in a perverse way, all men imitate you. He's speaking to God. It's like a prayer. In a perverse way, all men imitate you who put themselves far from you. Odd. And rise up in rebellion against you. All that activity is imitation, he says. Even by such imitation of you, they prove that you are creator of all nature. And therefore, there is no place where they can depart entirely from you. When they build themselves up in terms of their personal identity, in terms of their own glory, even inappropriately, they are speaking concerning the image of God inadvertently. You can't get away from it because God is all-encompassing. It would be wonderful if those same people had faith. But even if they do not, they reflect the image of God. So what's the application to this particular passage? Let me try. You may disagree. I think the application goes something like this. Even in humanity's rage against God for not being loving, they acknowledge him as the ultimate source of love because deep down inside, they believe God should be love. Because love does not exist without God's presence. Another statement of love in this passage is that God's love is all-encompassing. This means that all humanity, whether good or bad, experiences the love of God. Why? Because God loves all humanity, whether they're good or whether they're bad. By the way, the ancient world into which these epistles were written didn't have such a category. For the most part, in the ancient world into which these epistles were written, it was appropriate only to love those who were worthy of your love. This is just smashed to oblivion in the person of Jesus Christ. I love the world, says Jesus Christ. I love all of humanity. And he demonstrated it while here. That's why he was criticized as being the friend of sinners, publicans, tax collectors, because he loved them all. That's why people who were far outside the circle of righteousness flocked to Jesus because he loved them all. He could identify in them somewhere in the mess of sin the image of God and he called them. He called them to follow him, to experience the love of God. That's what Jesus did. If you, if you want the, the grandest picture of Jesus loving all humanity, remember this one on the cross 
while he dies an excruciating death of crucifixion. He looks down on the people who are scoffing at him and cursing him and throwing things at him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Really? They kind of did know what they were doing. They hated him and that's why they were doing it. They thought him an imposter and that's why they were doing it. But still, in spite of that, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Let's put it another way. Lord, have mercy on them because they don't understand. That's divine love. Wonderfully demonstrated in Jesus Christ. It is by love that we know God. John also says. We might know God in a variety of ways. We might study God's attributes. We might study creation and see the handiwork of God. We might study ancient texts that speak about God and especially the Bible itself as the the text that speaks ultimately about God. And we may know God through those means, but we don't truly know God, says John except through love. Why? Because God is love. God is not like love. God does not periodically demonstrate love. God is love. Very short, profound sentence. That means that God is not giving us one of his many attributes or activities when he engages in loving actions. Every action of God is a loving action because God is love. So every activity flows from love. When God judges, it's an activity of love. When God implements justice, it's actually love. When God condemns sin, it's actually love. Other passages call God a consuming fire. Doesn't sound loving, does it? But it's the activity of consuming Sin, which destroys the image of God. And so, God as a consuming fire is the ultimate expression of love because he takes the sin that was ours and transfers them to Jesus Christ and redeems us from the captivity of sin. That is love. That is God. Of course, he reminds us that the ultimate expression of love was witnessed by them in real history and real time. God expresses his love primarily in this. And we hear echoes of John 3.16 here. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. 
into the world that whoever believes on him will have eternal life. Christ came as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is our story. This is our song. The love of God. That's why so much of our music is about the love of God. Because it's who God is. So what is our part in this story? The story of the love of God? He puts it this way. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. You're like, oh, it it was not complete in Jesus? No, that's not really what he's saying. There's another translation um, that I read this week, I think puts it better. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. You, the church, when you live in Christ's love, you bring it into full expression to each other and to the world. It's as though Christ is coming again in you when you express his love. This led an ancient Christian theologian called a church father, Clement of Alexandria, to make a rather stunning statement that could be taken in the wrong direction, but I'm going to give it anyway. He said, the real Christian is the one who practices being God. Practices being God? I mean, that sounds like blasphemy. I'll never be God. And as a matter of fact, if I took it the wrong way, I would think I was God and I was divine. But that's not what the author is saying. He's saying that the embedded nature of the incarnation through Christ in our hearts allows us to practice being God right here, right now. Through love. Not condemnation, but love. And this actually brings us right back around to the first part. The essential elements of truth. The most important truth is this. Jesus Christ and the cross, which leads to the resurrection. All historical realities that demonstrate unequivocally the nature of God's love. The truth about Christ's humanity, death, and resurrection is absolutely essential in order to understand love. The kind of love that John's talking about. Because if you lose those truths, you also lose the deep love of God in Jesus Christ. So, truth matters. And the truth is, God is love. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for... um, the way in which we're reminded of the truth in, uh, in your word. We're also grateful for the fact that it wasn't just 
inspirational thoughts or conjecture about what God was like or what we ought to do. You, you gave it to us in real time in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So we pray, Lord, that you will help us to be carriers of that love to a world that knows you and a world that doesn't know you. It doesn't matter. We're supposed to be carriers of your love. In order to do that most fully, we have to believe most completely. So help our unbelief and give us the courage to be the people that we're called to be so that people actually will know we're Christians by our love. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.